Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. If you're a fund manager, investor, or financial advisor driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected in the Faith Driven Investor community is to sign up for our newsletter, faithdriveninvestor.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. One of the things we've heard the community ask us for is help in finding great deals to invest in. And so we've launched Marketplace. It's a new platform of funds and direct deals. Everything from private equity and real estate funds to ETFs. From philanthropic to market rate deals spanning the U.S. and emerging markets. Check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org forward slash marketplace. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you have about being a faith-driven investor. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guest may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. I think whether you just got a cold email in or you spent a few weeks with an entrepreneur, I think it comes down to encouragement, number one, humility, number two, and transparency. You know, encouragement, there's always something to encourage somebody on, right? There's always something to affirm. This is kind of the classic Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people, that it's not flattery, but you can do the work to find something that you can encourage them in. And so we always try to do that, right? Hey, the problem that you're solving, we've seen a few go at it in a certain way, but this is actually the most elegant or we think the most insightful because of X, Y, Z and your story is perfect fit for it. There's always something to be able to encourage. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. Today's episode features one of the great thinkers in the FDI community talking about a topic that, well, frankly, none of us really like talking about, and that is how to say no. No investor can say yes to every deal that crosses their desk, nor should they. But learning how to say no is a uniquely acquirable skill. Today, Jake Thompson of Sovereign's Capital is back after talking to us about Fundraising 101. He's here today to walk us through some of the practices he incorporates in situations where he has to say no and how these tips might serve you. Let's listen in. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. This is a podcast where we hear from investors and talk generally about investing. And we talk about how to steward God's capital that he's entrusted to us. And we've got two special guests. One's my co-host, Luke Roush, but nonetheless, he's still a special guest. And he's with us this morning. Partner, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Also have Jake Thompson, partner in Sovereign's Capital, great friend, long-term partner, long-term friend, guy runs the venture capital operations and investments out of Sovereign's Capital. Jake, good morning. Good morning. Awesome to be here with you guys. Okay, so we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of people would think, gosh, I just passed this over, right? They're going to talk about how to say no to entrepreneurs. I mean, how hard can it be, right? And yet it's something that's incredibly important. As we were just thinking and planning this and just brainstorming on it together, a good investor will end up saying no 98 or 99 times out of 100. And for something that takes that much activity, it's something we should probably be spending some time on. One of the things that we've always looked at at Sovereigns is that there are five or six different things that you need to do well when you think about investing. You need to be able to fundraise. You need to be able to negotiate deals. You need to find deals. You need to be able to manage your deals. You need to do fund operations. And my partners here will tell me what I'm missing. But by far and away, the most important thing that you do as a professional investor is the deal flow. If you have great deal flow, everything else kind of solves itself. You come alongside the right entrepreneurs, they're able to prosper. And in order to have great deal flow, 
you end up even hundreds and hundreds of deals that you look at in the course of a month, that means you become very, very selective. You find the very, very, very best that gives your investors a great return. The problem with that is that to the extent you have great deal flow, that means that many more times that you need to say no. Now, Jake has always impressed us, Luke, in the way that he's able to say no. Jake, riff a little bit about why it's important to say no well and why you see that as an opportunity to love other people. And can you love other people in the world of investments? Yeah, well, I have to hit all three of those. Uh, you know, I think it's important for a few reasons. You can think about it almost pragmatically as an investor, right? If you, if you say no well, well, it's a way to turn something that's inherently transactional a little bit more relational, right? And that's good for deal flow networks. It's good for an entrepreneur kind of second time around when they're raising, maybe they will be more of a fit then. But I think much more than that, uh, saying no well is a way that we do indeed love somebody else, that so we can recognize and honor the image of God in somebody else and making the time to do that and really putting the effort to do that well. And it's something, as you mentioned, we have much more practice than we ever would want. It's the worst part of our jobs. And yet out of the 3,000 or so companies that we've seen over the last eight years, we've only invested in 51 or so. Uh, so almost 3,000 times over eight years, we are doing the worst part of our job, which makes you wonder why we would do it that many times. And yet to be able to do it well is something that is very important to us. So, so these we, are 3,000 men and women. And since Sovereign's Capital just invests in faith-driven entrepreneurs, these are men and women that have come into you really believing that God's laid something out in advance for them to do, has called them to do, that the thing that's standing in front of their ability to succeed is getting capital that's kind of a really vulnerable spot to be in, right? You feel called to do something. You probably left your job and you've kind of you know, talked about your business and yet it's kind of hard to separate the business idea from the person. So the person you're talking to has got to take acceptance or failure personally, right? Yeah, absolutely. And even beyond the professional risk, they're probably, if they're married and, and they've got a family, you know, they're kind of negotiating at home and trying to figure it out. They're taking a big risk in front of their community. I mean, there, there are a whole bunch of reasons why this uh, has the potential to be just a very stressful, difficult process. And most of these entrepreneurs, you know, while we say no to that many and only invest in one or two out of, out of 100, they're seeing those same kind of stats, right? If they can even raise money, they're getting told no, sometimes hundreds of times. And the way that that will weigh on their vision, their own just personal mental health, uh, just their encouragement, their drive to pursue that vision that God's put before them, it certainly can weigh them down. And I think we can come alongside them and be able to do that a little bit better. Well, and within venture capital, one of the things that I think has given venture capitalists a challenging name is not just saying no, but also the timing of when those come through. Oftentimes there's a you know, black hole that you're putting diligence and information in, and then nothing really ever comes back out in the way of either feedback on why a no came back or sometimes even just a no itself, right? It just kind of goes into the ether and you wonder where you are. And so I think that part of being a faith-driven investor is actually being different from the way the world works. And you know, rather than treating our own time as kind of the most precious asset, being able to put the shoe on the other foot, this is what I've seen you, Jake, do so well, being able to put the shoe on the other foot and actually say, hey, this entrepreneur's time is very, very precious. And sometimes being able to get to a quick no and also being able to articulate kind of why we're a no, and if it's a no, not never, or sort of just a no, not now, being able to articulate why is important and maybe you know instrumental in terms of helping them make some adjustments that help them either raise capital from us in the future at Sovereign or raise capital from another investor. So maybe just talk a little bit about 
some of the things that you've been exposed to that have really kind of made an impression in terms of the timing and also the feedback that you give? Yeah, well, and so many of the entrepreneurs that we invest in, they're getting all kinds of investors, right? So we see through the lens of those entrepreneurs, many of us in our experience in the past, we see that fortunately for faith-driven investors, it's a very low bar that we're competing with, right? It's usually investors that, as you mentioned, Luke, will kind of ghost them in the process or maybe seem over the top, optimistic, enthusiastic, and have a very whiplash of a no, because for whatever reason, they're just trying to retain the option to invest and, and just can't quite get there. And so that's what we're dealing with. And in terms of how we think about it and how we might even structure it, I think you can probably break it down to offer a bit of a framework into encouragement, humility, and transparency. I think whether it's a cold inbound or it's somebody whose hand that you've held for a while, I think those three topics or those three focuses can make that process go very well and very redemptively. And uh, we'll maybe unpack some of those. But to affirm where you're coming from, I can remember horror stories that we, everything you just mentioned were learnings, right? Luke, we didn't know that out of the gate. I can think, I don't think about these often, but when I do, I sure cringe. You know, those deals that maybe we got to know the investor or the entrepreneur rather for four, six, eight weeks, you know, having a slew of requests and talking with customers and, and just never quite getting there. And, and a couple of times in the end, we ended up saying no for a reason that if we were really being honest with ourselves and doing the hard work and not having some worry about missing out, we probably could have come to those conclusions very early on, right? Probably within the first week or so. It's probably safe to say, at least at Sovereigns, our experience is it's rare that we are not excited about a deal and through diligence, we do get excited, right? Sometimes we kind of think, well, let's just keep researching and doing diligence and maybe something will excite us. I can't think of any time that we made an investment and we're very happy with it, that that was the case, right? It's usually the opposite. We start off very excited and now let's go and try to prove ourselves wrong because uh, we just tend to be some optimistic guys. And, and so that's more the process. And so all that to say, we've taken a long time to get to a no when we weren't excited to be in with, thought we could be, but getting that quick no, whether it's on the spot, it's in a couple of days or a week or two, if you're really digging in, uh, that's something that we really hold really is the value of what we do. And so that would seem to be contrary a little bit to one of the dynamics that you think is big about investing, which is optionality, right? Yes, we've heard about the fast yes, the fast no, the slow no, the slow no being the worst for the entrepreneur and clearly not a way to love on them. But that's a little bit countercultural in terms of investing, right? Because let's just acknowledge there's this natural tendency for an investor to want to draw things out to give them more optionality. Maybe the entrepreneur you're talking to lands a big deal, or maybe a whole bunch of different things might happen that gives you more of an opportunity to really be able to assess the deal. Maybe it gives you a chance to change some of the terms. You see that the entrepreneur kind of gets strung out a little bit. They need to cash that much more. And at the end, they're willing to cave a little bit more on some negotiating points because they need the money that much more than they did three months ago But when you talk to them. So how are you able to fight the urge and not to suggest that you have these nefarious tendencies and that you're like, you know, let's go ahead and string this person. I know you well enough to know that that's not a thought for you. And yet optionality to see how the next quarter's numbers come in or to be able to assess and to look at different things. Optionality is your friend as an investor. And yet that's not always the best way to love an entrepreneur. So talk more about that dynamic. Yeah, so two things. One, very practical. I don't know that we've ever been in a situation where waiting and we've, of course, never intentionally strung anything out. But if we were part of a process or maybe a lead investor wasn't honoring the entrepreneur how we would like them to, we've never really seen that work out where a deal came to fruition that went really well with all the relationships intact and the rest. And we just haven't missed out on that. So it's probably more fear-based than not. Uh, and I would also point 
to the idea that we look to be in a relationship for you know five, seven, ten years, right? These are long-term relationships, and we don't want to be getting in a relationship by kind of tricking somebody into certain terms, right? Into us. So I th- suffice to say that that doesn't tend to be that big of a temptation for us in wanting to have that optionality in a way that hurts the entrepreneur. Now, where we do get optionality, I would say, is doing the work to honor the entrepreneur, to build their relationships. So I think even in the way that you say no, you can build a rapport. You can show the entrepreneur what type of investor you are and how you will honor them in a way that sometimes, especially over multiple rounds, we've seen earn us additional looks, earn us optionality, because we're thinking about the long game and we're thinking about the relationship first. And so I think that can actually, over several reps, that can work in our favor because just like, again, I bring up the analogy of marriage so often, right? When you see somebody's true character, you end up wanting to have them around. You end up wanting to not kind of miss out on who that person is and not just getting tricked into something, I would say. So we've seen that optionality work out through relationship. So Jake, you know, one of the things that I think would be really good to talk through is just in full transparency, what are some of the things that we've done wrong over the years at Sovereigns? I mean, there's some things that we've learned, but there's also a bunch of challenges that we've had kind of doing things incorrectly. And maybe just to give you a chance to think, one thing that I know that has happened at least once, but probably two or three times, is when we don't have conviction on a deal or an entrepreneur, we will sometimes kind of hang around the hoop and we'll put the CEO or the founder through some do loops while we're trying to figure out whether other informed investors are going to put capital in. So on at least a couple of occasions, I have stalled trying to figure out whether other people have conviction rather than us personally having conviction. And that can really drive people nuts because they feel like, gosh, do you really want to date me? Or do you want to see if other people want to date me? And then you want to date me? Like, what's the deal? And I think a big learning that we've had is trying to get to our own determination of whether we have conviction to be a partner. If we do, then we should step forward you know, with some amount of courage and declare our interest. Uh, if we don't, then we should free the entrepreneur up to find somebody who really is a better fit and has more subject matter expertise. And so that's something that I think we've done wrong. And, you know, here in Silicon Valley, we see a lot of others who also maybe don't have that much conviction, a little more of kind of a herd mentality, sheep following each other around. And that's something that can really, I think, give our industry a challenging name. But Jake, what other things have we done over the years that would just be good to share with listeners so that they don't make the same mistakes that we've made? Yeah, I can think of too many of those, unfortunately. A few that come to mind. First one, it was an entrepreneur that we'd got no for a while. And in the end, I think we probably said no in a way that wasn't helpful because we knew that we weren't going to get there. We didn't want to tell him over the phone. We thought, hey, we've gotten to know this guy over three months or so. Like this really deserves to be in person. And we just, we were moving quickly on other things and didn't really think about it. So invited him to come join us. In that case, it was in San Jose. Uh, Came down quick conversation, tell them, hey, we really appreciate this. Let's buy some coffee. Let's hang out. But we're not going to be able to get to an investment this time. And come to find out he was in Oakland earlier that day, ended up driving an hour each way just to come here. No, right? Because we're thinking like, okay, this is, let's check this box in our to-do list. And it turned a little bit more transactional than I think we would have liked. So that was just kind of a whiff because we weren't being very empathetic. We weren't putting ourselves in his shoes and maybe thinking of a better way to do that. I think one that we probably hit more often is just being positive with the entrepreneur. You know, we always want to be encouraging. We're at our core encouragers as sovereigns, I would say, for the most part. And so sometimes in the past, it's really easy to focus on the positive things that we're excited about along the way. And give an indication, if we were on the other side, we'd probably think the same thing. But give an indication that we're very interested and the default place we might end up is that there would be an investment. 
And it's not until later on down the line that we realize, okay, well, our investment committee and where we've landed and based on some other experiences and research and the rest for a couple of risks that were there earlier on, we're just not going to be able to get to an investment. And I think that's been a little bit of whiplash in the past, whereas I think what we do a better job now at, hopefully, is foreshadowing that a little bit, setting expectations both on timing, but also saying, here's what we're really excited about. Here are things that either we're worried about or we'd have to diligence, or if we get tripped up, it might be because of X, Y, and Z. And so that's what we're going to focus diligence on. And it helps to give a little bit of transparency into our diligence process. And it foreshadows, here are some things that may lead to us getting to a no. So let's have a very open, transparent conversation about that along the way. And if one of those risks materialize in our own diligence, and we say we can't quite get to an investment, there's at least less of a whiplash. There's more of an understanding that there was this reason there were the expectations I think in the past, we have just tried to retain that option by being really positive and wanting to be those investors that are caring for them well. You know, one of the things is we talk about this sense of the herd mentality. That's actually really interesting. There's a study that came out of Correlation Ventures, which talked about where the winners are coming from in venture capital. And it's not any big surprise that what delivers the best returns for the big venture capital funds are the unicorns. I think we all know that, that the venture capital as an industry tends to be focused on these binary bets. And increasingly, there's some firms that are out there that are looking for some of these ground rule doubles instead of just the home runs. And yet, the industry is focused on the home runs. And yet, Correlation Ventures found and looking at where these returns are coming from, that many of the deals that the big VCs thought were going to do well, where a whole bunch of herd came in and it was oversubscribed, didn't have any type of bearing on whether the company was successful or not. And so they found out in the research that many, the majority of the big winners in venture capital were led by smaller firms. Many were from financings that were undersubscribed or inefficiently syndicated. And so if your investment premise is, let's hold off and see if some other people really like this company, that actually doesn't help you to understand whether that deal is going to be successful or not. There's not any correlation there. And I think that that's fascinating because otherwise you're listening to this and saying, well, yes, of course, I want to love my neighbor. Of course, I want to love the entrepreneur, but I want to be a good steward of the capital that's been entrusted to me. And so if that's part of the negotiating game and that's what gets me the top quintile returns, I need to do that. But actually, the data doesn't bear that out either. Yeah, well, in a lot of it, I think, comes down to supply and demand, right? If you don't have a contrarian perspective, or at least you don't see the world a little bit differently than everyone else, you end up having a whole lot of capital in there, bids up prices, and you don't end up getting those returns. And so it's human nature and the data. I think this is one of those cases where they're often in conflict. Yeah. There's also some really interesting work that's been done previously, just to understand, like, what are all the deals that firms have passed on that ended up being really remarkable in terms of the opportunity? And we keep a list of kind of our anti-portfolio, Jake, where, you know, like, here's all the things that we said no to, and boy, we wish we could get it back. And the inspiration uh, on that is the original Bessemer Trust, and you can Google this, the Bessemer Mm -hmm. Anti-Portfolio is some of the funniest reading you'll ever do. If you're an investor, you care about angel investing, you care about venture investing, about why they pass on eBay or Amazon, or just it's just very, very, very funny reading. And out of that, we've endeavored to do the same. Jake, tell us about our anti-portfolio. Yeah, you know, we've got a bunch. I'd say we've got a solid half dozen that are just very, very painful when it comes to returns. I would like to think, you know, one thing that we always look at, I should say, and this is probably true half the time, that if we were to make that decision again, based on the information we had at the time, that is our gauge of success of did we make the right decision or not, right? Hindsight 2020, a lot of unexpected things happen. 
But sometimes I'd say the half that we definitely would like to do differently is because there's something about the industry or the size of the opportunity or the technology that we didn't quite love. And yet the entrepreneur was just stellar and we invest in people first, but every once in a while we think, this is an incredible entrepreneur, but in a space that we just don't have a lot of conviction in. And so it's almost, especially in the early days, getting a little spooked by a space that we didn't know and yet not back in a world-class entrepreneur. Uh, those are probably more than anything on our anti-portfolio. Do you ever get emails from entrepreneurs as they go public that say, how do you like me now? <laughs> I get a lot of emails from entrepreneurs that say, uh, you better watch out because we are going public. But I, I've never gotten on the other side. Yeah. I tell you, yeah, yet. I haven't gotten that yet. So Jake, I'd love to just kind of get tactical and specific. How do you think about closing the loop with entrepreneurs when you have to say no? How do you decide how much time to spend? Because what I hear from other investors and what I've felt personally, what I've actually, you know, you and I have had this debate, right? Like you can get sunk actually saying no and doing a great job with that. And meanwhile, the portfolio that we've invested in that we've partnered with deeply, you know, is hungry for our time, but we're too busy saying no and trying to be good stewards. Like how have you been able to find a balance between uh, allocation of time to really shepherd those relationships well, to make sure that people aren't scarred coming away, recognizing that we've fouled it up a whole bunch of times in the last nine years. How do you think about managing that? Maybe just give listeners some real tactical guidance about how you go about it. Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll break that down by giving a little bit of our template. Uh, and I call it a template just because we've kind of normed on it. It's nothing real formal, but I think whether you just got a cold email in or you spent a few weeks with an entrepreneur, I think it comes down to encouragement, number one, Humility, number two, and transparency. You know, encouragement, there's always something to encourage somebody on, right? There's always something to affirm. This is kind of the classic Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people, that it's not flattery, but you can do the work to find something that you can encourage them in. And so we always try to do that, right? Hey, the problem that you're solving, we've seen a few go at it in a certain way, but this is actually the most elegant, or we think the most insightful because of X, Y, Z, and your story is a perfect fit for it. There's always something to be able to encourage. That'd be number one. Number two, I think having a spirit of humility is really important, whether an email or in person or the rest, right? This is kind of considering others better than yourself, understanding, especially at an early stage, there's going to be so many unknowns. No one's going to get it quite right. So we don't want to have the pride of saying we have the right answers. So we always want to have that, that humble tone. Henry, there was a line that still strikes me that I heard you say a few times early on where you approach it so well when you have feedback for an entrepreneur, we'll hear a pitch and they'll describe how they're going in a certain direction. And you'll say something along the lines of, well, I understand and I completely get where you're going A, B, and C. And you know, you had the experience and you know where you're going. And I know about 5% of what I need to know to make this statement, but it sure seems like D, E, and F could be pretty interesting too. Like, what do you think about that? Right where Henry probably has an opinion about what they could be doing and yet just positions it in a way that is winsome, that recognizes the number one way to get people to stop hearing you is to tell them that they're wrong, right? So how do you kind of go around that and still serve them with humility and being able to deliver truth? Which well, you're kind for saying that, you know, a lot of that was just informed by my experience as an entrepreneur. And I semi-famously, almost famously, we went 0 for 40 in venture raises. That means 40 different firms in probably, I don't know, 175 meetings or something like that over two and a half years saying no. And I'll tell you, I remember a guy, and, you know, it'd be fun if he listened to this podcast, I wouldn't suggest he would, but there's a guy named Erskine Bowles at Carousel Capital, who I will remember to this day said no so well, and he didn't take a ton of time in doing it, but he had a way of validating who I was as an entrepreneur. It went something along the lines of this, and it's like, listen, I gotta tell you, I don't wanna bury the lead. I'm very sorry that we're not gonna be able to invest in you. But before I go on a little bit further, I wanna give you kind of some thoughts and some feedback on why. I wanna let you know that what you're doing is really cool, and I really admire the partnership that you've got with David. 
And from what I can gather about the team that you've built, you got something really special there. I couldn't get my partners to, you know, a couple of different key things that help us to get unity around making an investment. But ultimately, you guys got a lot of courage. And I think that you're going to be successful. And I'm going to be hoping and praying that you are. And I just want you to keep on going. And this is probably another one of those data points where it's going to be kind of maybe frustrating. I would have loved to have seen us be able to make an investment and we're not going to be able to do that. But you guys have something special going on there. And the way that you're thinking about solving this problem is really interesting. And I think you have an opportunity to refine it over the next couple of years. And I'm going to be really eager to see how you guys work. Versus some of the other times where we had two different venture capitalists fell asleep during meetings with us. It's reasonably hard to do. I mean, it happened. Unbelievable. Oh, my goodness. Uh, or, was it when David was talking or you were talking? Who was talking? <laughs> um, you know, well, you know me. I'm a co-host podcast. It, it was me. It was me talking. And uh, there's some <laughs> funny stories as to how some of those things ended that you may know that probably not great for prime time. But you had some of that. But also, you'd have some of the just like the canned things like, we can't invest right now, but as you progress, you know, give us a look. You know, keep us in the loop. Let us know how you're doing. And the thought from the entrepreneur at the time is like, yeah, sure, pal. I mean, you just said, no, you wasted all this time. And as soon as we have the big win, I high five my partner about the big win. And we're thinking about calling you right away. Right? It's never going to happen. <laughs> and so I think that part of, to whatever degree that I slash we do it well, it's because we've been on the receiving end and have seen it done so poorly. But I'll tell you, Erskine Bowles did it with such class and it just didn't take him that long to do. And I'll never forget it. And this is 20 years ago. That he did that. Yeah. Yeah. And even that point you mentioned jumped out at me where I think you have the opportunity to refine some things, right? There, there's a transparency where he wasn't given the, oh, well, timing's wrong or let's just pick it up later. There's, there's actually a reason that he may have given, not necessarily in a whole lot of detail, not necessarily trying to make it a conversation, but just giving you some indication of where they're coming from and why. And so I think with that encouragement, humility, transparency, that doesn't take that much time when you do it a number of reps, when you kind of have a, a bit of an instinct for doing that deep build over time. In some ways, I think, you know, Amy Minnick has been so wonderful and insightful in talking about gleaning in investments. I think whether it's spending time saying no to entrepreneurs or there's some other activities like that, that in some ways is some sort of gleaning to say it does take some time. And that's a way to honor other somebody else and to lift them up. And yet we find that if, as you, you do it more and more, it doesn't take all that much time to be able to do it well as long as you're encouraging, being humble, and having some transparency to it. Well, I think also one of the things that's really important for faith-driven investors is that it's not dissimilar to the role that pastoral staff or congregation has in the church. You know, when you have someone come in and sort of try you out and interact, you know, we all know folks who have been burned by bad experiences they had in either youth group or a church or whatever. And so to the extent that the gospel is going to be front and center to the work that we do as investors, it just raises the bar considerably that those who we come in contact with, particularly those that we don't end up progressing into some form of partnership with, have a good taste in their mouth. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen done well by others is the entrepreneur, even when they get a no, they do genuinely feel like the person is in their corner. And, you know, we've tried to adopt this at times. At times we've done it okay. At times we've really blown it. But the entrepreneur really feeling is that we are for them. We want to see them be successful. If there's folks that we know in our network, in our advisory network, or in our investor network, or you know other secular or faith-driven firms, to the extent that we can connect them to folks who can break down obstacles or help them, even if we have no horse in the race whatsoever and have nothing to gain, to the extent that, particularly for entrepreneurs who are you know, great folks on a great idea, it's just not the right fit for us, to the extent that they see us being willing to sort of leverage our network for them, even though we have nothing to gain, 
I think that's a way of them really believing that we are practicing what we preach in terms of really demonstrating a care and a belief that God has equipped them to do something special, even though it's not for us to be a partner with them in that, that uh, we're trying to do other things that we can to help them. Yeah. And I think that's really important. You know, there's a market dynamic, particularly with entrepreneurs that are in the 20 or 30 year age group. There's a lot of research by Barn and others talking about some of the dissatisfaction and some of the challenges that they've had with the church. And so in light of that, you don't want to be yet another example about, see, that's why I don't go to the Christian community. You know, the church doesn't get me and we become another negative reference and it just takes them that much further away from faith because there's real harm that can be done here, especially for investors that have identified themselves as Christ followers that will pray with entrepreneurs ahead of time. When we say no, it could be significantly more damaging than if Battery, Sequoia, U.S. Venture Partners, Redpoint, all those people say no. That's not, you know, a no from those people isn't going to take them potentially further away from their faith. But a no from somebody who shares their faith who says no, may discourage them and just say, you know, the Christian community doesn't get me. And yet God created us to be in community. So if you're listening to this podcast, Faith Driven Investor, a good chance that you're driven by your faith. And so I think that that's that much more important that we as an investing community do this well. And we at Sovereign's Capital do it better than we've done in the past. Yeah, I'll tell you too, it's been very encouraging for us having even just the FDI marketplace, right? Where even if there's a no, we might be able to forward them on. I think meeting the exact mission that that you guys are going for, of it's not just an encouraging word or I'll pray for you, but hey, I, I'm going to tell you no and I'm going to forward you on, not just to the podcast, but to a marketplace where you can find capital. For us to be able to bring them into the community of faith-driven investors, to have a whole lot of different types of people that are looking at the marketplace, that's been a big blessing for us because we can say no and, right, in a unique way. Well, that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up, Jake, because, you know, particularly in today's market, there's not a shortage of capital, and there's not a shortage of ideas. But trying to find the right capital for the right ideas and trying to make that match is very, very challenging. And so it's a great point for other investors that are out there, knowing that the marketplace exists as a way of short-circuiting maybe what would otherwise be kind of a random process is great opportunity and great kind of off-ramp into another whole universe of faith-driven investors that have complementary and different skills than what our firm or, or your firm may have. So I want to close just with how we typically close of uh, what God is teaching you right now, Jake. But before we do that, just summarize three things that investors should be thinking about in terms of how they say no the right way, and then close by what God's teaching you right now. Yeah, I would say getting back to that theme we've hit on, getting to a quick no, if it's going to be a no, thinking about their time, right? Being empathetic there. Uh, number two, try to see the image of God in them. That sounds really theoretical and theological, but really just how do you see them as a person? And if you were to put yourself in their shoes, how would you want to be treated? Uh, how do you honor them? I think even just stopping and praying before interactions, before you write an email, before you're sitting with an entrepreneur to say no, and just have the spirit work on our hearts to try to put that interaction in the right light, see it through his eyes. I think those are three things that I would recommend. So, and Jake, just tell us what you're hearing from God through his word. Maybe this morning, it doesn't need to be this morning, maybe this week, this month, but how do you feel that God is speaking to you in your life right now? One idea that I'm thinking about a decent amount these days is uh, just this concept of anxiety. We're with some entrepreneurs and they're doing fundraises and they're sleepless nights and just some hard times. And I was reading Philippians about two weeks ago now and really struck because I got, of course, to Philippians 4, right? Which is like the go-to for anxiety of, hey, be anxious about nothing, but everything through prayer and supplication kind of lifted up to the Lord. And the peace of past understanding will come to you. And 
<laughs> in one sense, I think that's such an encouragement. And on the other sense, it can be kind of discouraging or even anxiety inducing because like, gosh, especially an entrepreneur going through a fundraise, are you feeling that lack of anxiety? And if not, it's kind of like you think you got something going wrong. But what really jumped out, I mean, this is the point I'm getting to, is reading Philippians all in one sitting. I got chapter two where Paul essentially has this riff where he has his missionary friend, Epaphroditus, who got really sick. The Philippians didn't know he was sick. They thought he might die. And so part of the letter, Paul wants to let him know, hey, he's okay. I'm going to send him to you. And it kind of talks about, we're all very anxious about this. Epaphroditus is anxious. I'm anxious about it. And the only way I'm going to solve it is by sending him to you so that my anxiety can be reduced somewhat. And it seems as though it would be saying, well, we do experience anxiety because of the brokenness of the world. And sometimes Paul, at least, was looking at the circumstance. And even when he was trying to address the circumstance, it didn't quite get him told to that piece that passes understanding. And yet he gets to chapter four and says, this is what we strive for. And so I don't have a clear takeaway from all that, but that's what I'm wrestling with, kind of looking at from different angles with God. And I think I'm landing just on this idea of the already, not yet, right? God has already accomplished the victory and it is not yet fully here. And so how do we live into that kingdom that is still coming? It's still on its way. And yet we know kind of what that faithful kingdom living is like. And maybe some layer of anxiety at sometimes doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing something wrong, but just that we're in this kind of fallen world in a tough spot. And I don't know where to go from there, but that's what I'm thinking about. That's a good one. That's a good word. Already, not yet. And then that leaves you in this place of faith, believing right. in it. Amen. Outstanding. Great. Thanks, Jake, for being with us. Awesome to hear your thoughts. I think this is such an important topic because it occurs so frequently in the lives of investors. And being able to say no the right way is just fundamental to being able to be a witness and testimony in our faith and how we interact with others. So thanks for your thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We're very, very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven investor community. Hey, the best way for you to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. And while you're there, we, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people join the discussion now from all around the world. But it's also very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and one that you'll share with others. This podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman, program director Johnny Wills, music by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdrags.com and audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.